10 years ago, about this time, I um, read this article on uh, the website of the Minnesota CBS News affiliate. It was after the uh, election in which uh, Barack Obama was reelected president. And in that article, it says, once the election results are in, you might find yourself very happy or very disappointed, depending on the outcome. There will likely be some people who will experience a bit of post-election depression. Then it goes on to quote some psychologist who talks about how uh, after elections, sometimes people have a hard time even looking at coworkers or friends or family members in the eye because they just don't understand how can you vote that way. And then uh, the article comes to an end by saying, so come Wednesday, or whenever we know the official outcome of all the races, some people will be struggling emotionally. So here we are 10 years after that article was written, and sure enough, about half of American voters are happy with the results, and half of American voters are not happy with their results, and uh, many being in some stage of post-election depression and to some degree struggling emotionally. Nothing new under the sun, not much has changed. And uh, to your relief, we're not going to talk about the elections the, the rest of our our time today, where we're intentionally shifting our, our eyes above that. We're um, going to be looking at Psalm 2, and in Psalm 2, um, God intentionally lifts our eyes above American politics and focuses our attention on the seat of power that really matters. God's heavenly throne. And God's heavenly throne, as we will see in Psalm 2 and other places, God's heavenly throne is totally unaffected and unfazed by American politics or any other political machinations in any place or time. And that's because what Psalm 2 presents us with is the, the messianic king. So we're doing a series right now called uh, Christ in the Psalms, and Christ is in Psalm 2. It's quoted several key times in the New Testament scriptures, and this is a perfect uh, messianic psalm for us to look at today, the Sunday after another, another American election. So... Um, it breaks down quite nicely. It's, um, the, the psalms are songs, they're poetry, as I'm sure you're, you're aware. There are four stanzas, three verses each. We're not going to look at it exactly that way. We're going to combine the second and third stanzas. We're going to um, look, look at it under three headings, starting with verses one through three, the nation's rebellion. So, Let's look again at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, the nation's rebellion. Here's a, 
Verses 1 and 2, first of all. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So who are these nations? What does that mean? Well, in verses 1 and 2, there are several um, parallel terms. There's the nations. There's also the peoples in verse 1, the kings of the earth, verse 2, and the rulers in verse 2. So all of these terms are used by the psalmist, and the New Testament tells us that David's the author of this psalm. But all of these terms are meant by the human author to convey the idea of the whole world, the nations, the whole world, the the entire fallen human race. And they're represented by their political leaders, their their rulers, their, their kings. And notice the language of rebellion that we just read in verses 1 and 2. They they rage. They plot. They set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's the language of rebellion. It's the language of conspiracy, if you think about it. And who are the nations in rebellion against? In verse 2, it's against the Lord and against his anointed. So uh, the Lord there is is Yahweh, the the sovereign, self-existent, covenant-keeping God of creation and redemption. He's the one spoken of in Psalm 22 and verse 28 that we saw last Sunday. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Turns out the nations don't appreciate that. And then the rebellion of the nations is also directed against the Lord's anointed. And this is the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah literally means uh, anointed one. Not every anointed one in the Old Testament is the Messiah, but this anointed one in Psalm 2 clearly is the Messiah, the the anointed one par excellence, the supreme ultimate anointed one, the promised deliverer and king and savior of God's people. That's who the Messiah is. And the New Testament equivalent for that word, Messiah, anointed one, is the word Christos. And that word is used in the New Testament with reference to Jesus 453 times. So just by the sheer weight of of numbers, the, the whole New Testament sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah promises, Jesus is the anointed one. And here's just a couple of examples. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, where uh, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? 
Then they had different answers. And then he turns his attention to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up and speaks on behalf of the disciples. And he confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the promised Messiah, Lord Jesus. And then the, the early church plainly saw these words from Psalm 2 fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So keep your finger here in Psalm 2 and look in Acts chapter 4. So in Acts chapter 4, this is after Christ's crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension to his throne in heaven, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter and John are taken into custody and warned by the Sanhedrin to stop speaking in Jesus' name. Then they're, uh, they're released, and then they go to the the church and tell them about the experience and the church gathers together to pray and notice what they say in their prayers or in their prayer. When they heard it, verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from Psalm 2, these two verses we've just seen. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So obviously the early church thought that the human author was David of Psalm 2, but more than that, the, the early church sees Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And even more specifically than that, the early church saw the opposition to Jesus in his death. And then uh, here, post-resurrection and post-ascension, in the Sanhedrin's uh, insistence that the disciples not preach in his name. They're still against the Lord and against his anointed. And so when, when Christians apply Psalm 2 to Jesus, we're, we're just following the lead of the scriptures. So back in Psalm 2 again, the next question is, well, why do the nations, the rulers, the kings... Why does the world of fallen human beings, including Israel, by the way, physical Israel, like in Acts chapter 4, why do they reject the Messiah? Why are they against the Lord and against his anointed? Verse 3, saying, this is uh, how they give voice to their being against the Lord and against his anointed, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the language of servitude. It's the language of 
basically uh, having to obey someone. And that gives us great insight. This is what's behind people's rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah and his gospel. They don't want to be subject to his authority. They want, to, they want autonomy. They want independence. Like the rebellious citizens in Christ's parable in Luke chapter 19 and verse 15, their attitude is, we do not want this man to reign over us. If, if the message of the gospel was nothing but, hey, pray a prayer, all of your sins will be forgiven, and you'll go to heaven when you die, no matter how you live, no matter who your actual Lord is, no matter if you love the Lord Jesus Christ or not, a lot of people would sign up to that. But the message of the gospel is not just that. That's a truncated gospel. The, the gospel says that we are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel says, uh, Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus said to a group of confessing disciples in his day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? People naturally don't want the Lord and his anointed to have authority over them. So that's the nation's rebellion. Next, Psalm 2 tells us about the Messiah's reign. And here we're combining the second and third stanzas of the, of the psalm. So verses four through nine, the Messiah's reign. And uh, notice how the Messiah's reign is introduced in verse four. He who sits in the heavens, who's that? Isaiah chapter 66, God says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So this is God. He who sits in the, th in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He scoffs at their rebellion. It, it's so unserious in terms of a real threat against the authority of God that it's laughable. And why is that? Well, listen to how God is described in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to skip around in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. And remember, it's the nations raging here. The nations are as a drop in a bucket. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings the princes to nothing. 
He makes the judges of the earth useless. You're going to rage against me and my Messiah, God says? Ha! It's so ridiculous that it's funny. One thing's for sure, by the way, that God never suffers from post-election depression. God is never threatened. God is never nervous. God is never sitting on his throne, losing sleep over what those silly American voters are going to do next, or whether or what this king or potentate or dictator or prime minister might do to upset God's plans. God is on his throne. He rules over the nations. He laughs at the rebellion, the rage of the nations. Then then he speaks. He laughs, scoffs at them. Then he speaks in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He's not negotiating with the rebellious nations. He's not trying to find common ground, a reasonable compromise. Okay, nations, you want your autonomy. I want you to worship me. Maybe there's middle ground here. No. He speaks to them in his wrath because that's what human sin provokes. That's the rational response of the holy and righteous God who never sins. That's the holy and righteous response of God to our sin, his his wrath. And then if, just in case we didn't get that point, and terrify them in his fury. So he laughs, but it's not really funny. And then here's what God actually says. As for me, in spite of your raging, in spite of your plotting, in spite of your taking counsel together against me, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is the name of a hill in Jerusalem that came to symbolize the center of God's power and presence in Israel. Um, There's a sense in which Zion means the White House in Israel. And my king, and God says, I have set my king. That, that emphasizes that it was, it's God's choice, it's God's activity, it's God's covenant, it turns out. In fact, this, this is supposed to remind us of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, Part of that Davidic covenant 
says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And definitely David's throne was a foreshadowing of this eternal throne and kingdom. And then David's immediate successors were a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment of this. But David and his merely human descendants could not possibly exhaust the meaning of the Davidic covenant because it's an eternal kingdom. And and that king sitting on David's throne will rule over all of the nations, not just the pagan nations around Old Testament Israel. And the New Testament applies this promise to Jesus. So in Luke chapter 1, you might as well turn there. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. This is uh, having to do with the birth of Jesus, which we'll be celebrating soon. But notice what the angel Gabriel said to Mary about the, the child whom the virgin would give birth to. Luke 1, verses 32 through 33. This son whom you're going to bear, Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High, which is also language from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says he will be to to me a son. He will be called the son of the Most High and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and over his kingdom there will be no end. That's the Davidic covenant. Plainly fulfilled in the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Psalm 2, now in verse 7, we hear from the Messiah himself, who's also identified as God's son. Verse seven. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this verse has been the subject of some controversy Uh, in church history. So, uh, for example, Arius. Arius was the one um, going around teaching in the early 4th century, so the early 300s AD, uh, that Jesus was a created being. And then it was Arius' influence that gave rise to the council at Nicaea, and then the Nicaean Creed, Eventually. So Arius said, If the Father begat the Son, and remember this language here, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. So here's Arius thinking physically. 
If the father begat the son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this, it follows there was a time when the son was not. That was Arius's conclusion from Psalm 2 and verse 7. And we could look at a whole bunch of verses, Old Testament and New, that teach the deity of Christ. But for now, I just want you to realize, to notice that in Psalm 2, the Son existed before he was begotten. The Son's talking. And the Son relates to us, he, he, he reveals to us what his Father, God, said to him. You are my Son. The Son pre-existed. The Son already existed. After that, today I have begotten you. So the language of Psalm 2 doesn't support the claims of Arius. Again, a whole bunch of other passages we could look at. But the son pre-existed his begottenness. And so whatever begotten means, it doesn't mean origin. It doesn't mean the beginning of his existence or creation. Well, what does it mean? Well, Acts, the book of Acts again, this time chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. The context here is um, Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas are in Antioch and Pisidia, not the Antioch where they were sent from, but little Antioch in Pisidia. And as part of Paul's message, verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That's referring to Christ's resurrection. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2 and verse 7. Paul says that Psalm 2 and verse 7, today I have begotten you, doesn't refer to the origin of Jesus. It refers to the resurrection of Jesus. So what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with today I have begotten you? Well, look over in to the next book in the Bible, Romans chapter 1. We saw Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 when we studied through the book of Romans years and years and years ago. It wasn't that long ago. So this Christ Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, verse 4, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So do you hear what Paul is saying? He's invoking Psalm 2 and verse 7 and saying that the, the resurrection proved that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was vindicated in his claims of not only being the Son of God, but of being the Messiah. That, that was his main claim. That he's the Christ. That's the main claim of the New Testament, 453 times. Jesus is the Christ. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? God raised him from the dead. Amen. So he didn't become God's son physically at some point in time, but he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead on a particular day, the day of his resurrection. Next, in Psalm 2, we're still talking about the Messiah's reign. In verse 8, we see the Messiah's inheritance. So, Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is not only that, he's also God's son, and he is receiving an inheritance. So, God says to the son in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. Remember what we saw last Sunday? Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. I don't remember either. That's why I'm looking it up. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And remember, this is the same psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm is attributed to Jesus multiple times in the New, in the New Testament. Jesus you uttered these words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the cross isn't the end of the story. All of the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the basis of the, of the Great Commission. Because of this promise, this inheritance to the Son, because the Son is who he is, the Lord's anointed. Jesus could say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, based on that divine authority that Jesus has, go, therefore, and make disciples 
of all nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And what's the result going to be? How successful is this enterprise going to be? How sure is this inheritance, is this promise to the Son? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lord and before the Lamb. But that's not all that God says to his son. He also says in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verses 8 and 9 come across as salvation, verse 8, judgment, verse 9. Salvation, while the opportunity exists, while it is called today, while God is in the business of saving sinners, which means right now, by the way, until Jesus comes again, but that is not going to last forever. Eventually, Jesus is going to come again, not as Savior, but as judge. And it's actually remarkable how many times in the book of Revelation, this language from Psalm 2 and verse 9 is used. It's always in the context of judgment. For example, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18. The nations raged. That's how Psalm 2 begins. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Remember, God speaks in his anger and his wrath in Psalm 2. In verse 5. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Revelation 12, 5. Uh, Jesus, the male child born from the woman, is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 and verse 9 language. Revelation 19 and verse 15. From his, and in the context, uh, that's that's the word. It's this, this man on the white horse And on his person, his name is the Word. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So Psalm 2 and verse 9 has its fulfillment in Jesus' role as judge of both the living and the dead. And here's the point. When you look at verses 7 through 9, this was never fulfilled in any of Old Testament Israel's 
king. No single king, no bloodline of merely human kings could possibly exhaust all of these promises concerning God's anointed. But it is being fulfilled in King Jesus. Great David's greater son. All right, finally, we come to the blessed invitation. The blessed invitation. Verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 is a word of warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And now we've come full circle. It's, it's the kings, the rulers of the earth who were in charge of the nations raging. It's these kings who have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. It's these rulers who have take, taken counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And now in verse 10, there's an indication that the day of judgment has not come. And so it's still the day of grace. It's still the, uh, an opportunity to lay down the weapons of warfare and rebellion and, and come to the Lord. Be warned, be wise. It's, it's a wise thing in light of who we are and who God is and what his promised future holds. It's wise to take this advice. And what is the blessed invitation exactly? Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Don't rebel against the Lord. Serve him. Obey him. Worship him. Love him. And do it with the right kind of heart, with, with fear, a holy reverence, realizing who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom after all. But it's not this cowering kind of fear that drives you away, fearing judgment. It's saving fear. It's fear that goes along with rejoicing and also trembling. We should rejoice and tremble at the same time. And then the invitation goes on in verse 12 Kiss the son. Stop rebelling against the son. This anointed one, this Messiah who is on, who's God's king, set on God's throne, mediating the authority of God on earth. Kiss the son. Pay homage to him. Love him sincerely. Instead of living your life for you and your sinful desires, now love Jesus and live for him. Submit to his lordship. Worship him as God. 
And the alternative is the son's anger and wrath at your perishing, which is what Psalm 2 says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And that's the thing about Jesus. Like Aslan said in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, or, or like it is said about Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's no tame lion. Jesus is gracious. He receives all sinners who come to him. Whoever comes to him, he will by no means turn away. But there will come a time when those who don't kiss the Son will answer to the Son and face his anger and his wrath. You know, Jesus said this. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 36, we're not sure I'm pretty sure uh, Jesus did speak verse 36, not sure about verse 16. It's all the word of God and it's all about Jesus. But anyway, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 36, same chapter. But whoever or whoever believes in the son has eternal life Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice how it concludes. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's why this is a blessed invitation. You will be happy. You will find joy and fulfillment if you take refuge in Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Find your refuge in him. Yes, refuge from anxiety about the rebellion of the nations. Anxiety about the things of this life. But more importantly, refuge from the wrath of God that we all deserve because of our rebellion. Perfect refuge. And so, if you're a believer, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Like we saw last week in Psalm 22, all is well in Christ's kingdom. Christ is on his throne. He's promised to build his church and even not only political forces, but the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. God is not worried or anxious about what's going on in the world and we shouldn't be either. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious picture of you and your anointed one, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that from Christ's place of authority at your right hand, he has saved us. He has sent forth his word. He is so that we would hear it. He sent forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts and he subdued, overcame our stubborn rebellion and saved us. Would you help us, Lord, to not be like people of the world, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, left or right. May our emotional well-being not hang in the balance of the most recent election. But help us to trust you. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and to realize that your will, your purpose will be accomplished. Have mercy on us, we pray. Forgive us of all of our sins and help us to walk as your obedient children who are confident because of our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.